think that the best way to approach talking to you, the producer, you know, in, in trying to make these decisions is one, educate yourself as to what exactly is going on with the you know, the erosion based on the management that you are implementing. Looking at, again, the, the soil health impacts that you're having with your current management and really learn about, again, the print, the underlying principles so that, as Jerry Maguire said, you can help us better help you. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. I'm sitting next to my esteemed co-host, Dr. Buzz Clute. And I'm sitting next to my other esteemed co-host, Barrett Self. Barrett, tell me, uh, well, today is May the 12th, 2023. Tell me what was so important about May 12th, 2022. Well, this marks the one-year anniversary of the Derecho event. The Derecho event. For those of you not in South Dakota, um, it was a... 15-minute blast of wind that put um, dirt up into the sky, put soil up into the sky, caused a lot of accidents, knocked over grain bins, knocked over large structures, caused a lot of damage. But the big thing was we saw a terrific amount of soil loss. And uh, today we're actually going to be talking with Chris Carell, who's from the um, National Technology Service Center in uh, in da- uh, in Dallas, Texas, he works for the NRCS, and um, he's the National Erosion Specialist. Yeah, well, I would say the voice to really unpack the soil implications of events like this. Yeah, yeah. So he, he you'll find out he works in real um, different situations. But South Dakota, the South Dakota agronomist, uh, um, called him up and asked him to look at this. And he did a number of modeling runs on on this weather event. And, you know, there's some eye-popping numbers. Number one, in 10 to 15 minutes um, uh, on a particular type of soil, and, and I'm not going to, I'll, I'll not mention it right now, we lost 15 tons, 15 tons of soil wow. in 15 minutes. That's one ton an hour. So that's that's a that's a truckload right yeah. there in just uh, sorry in 15 minutes not an hour. That's 15 minutes or not that amount 15 tons. That's tough to even wrap your head around. It is tough, but I think you know you'll find out that Chris did some modeling on um, uh, uh, five days before on May the seventh, and then also after the the big wind came up. That was just a 15 event. And what is most astonishing is that even when we had slightly smaller gusts of 20 to 25 miles an hour, uh, there was as much or more soil that was lost just from those lower gusts. So, yes, it was more spe- it was more spectacular. It looked like we went back to the Dust Bowl days, but the reality is that when those soils are uncovered, we see that um, uh, we had as much soil loss 
over a one-day period as in those 15 days. And, and that's, you know, all of that soil that's going off, that's the good stuff. Yeah, it's interesting, too, coming into this episode off of our last three, where we kind of shifted the mindset on soil disturbance a little bit. And now we're seeing the damaging effects that can come from, obviously, winds, but some forms of soil disturbance, but particularly when the soil isn't covered at all. Correct. Well, and, and so we're talking about rangeland, where a certain amount of disturbance is necessary. Even in cropland, there's some disturbance when we're planting and stuff. But in this case, we're talking about uh, lands that were tilled and, and were, you know, uh, possibly planted already, but totally uncovered, as you say. Um, and then he just mentions a couple of things about what happens if the, the land was covered, and he talks about that uh, and about some of the modeling there as well. Yeah, kind of clear data contrasting what happens to the land when it's not covered versus what happens to the land when it when it is. Very straightforward data, which I think is always useful because a lot of this, it's easy to get wrapped up in mindset shifts and one producer's opinion versus another, but... When we get down to data itself, it doesn't lie. Yeah, yeah. And let's be clear on this. This is not necessarily empirical data where guys went out and collected dust, uh, you know, up to, you know, a mile up in the sky. But they ran um, models. Uh, This one is called the sweep model. And it's a pretty darn reliable model. And uh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Okay, who's our... our co-host for this one is co-host there? co-host is the inimitable joe dickey oh joseph dickey the one and only the one and only all right well we'll hop out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode with chris carell joe dickey and dr buzz clue Chris Carell, uh, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you on board. Joe, glad to have you on board while it's still snowing up there in uh, um, in Minnesota. We have 80 degree weather outside at the moment. Well, Chris, we do want to talk about soil erosion and especially wind erosion, and we'll get back to that. But before we do that, let, let's have a little bit of your biography, Chris. Um, you're now in, in Dallas. Tell us how you got to where you are. Well, absolutely. Um, again, I am a, a proud graduate of uh, the University of Southwestern Louisiana, USL, Raging Cajuns. Um, I also uh, you know, have a master's degree from LSU in, in agronomy. So again, I'm a Louisiana native you know, through and through. And that's where I spent the majority of my, um, my career. Um, you know, after, you know, graduation, I think from LSU in 98, you know, I spent, see, six years uh, working as actually an environmental consultant, but still working on uh, on cropland and with soils, you know, doing remediation projects, uh, whether it, you know, be from, again, trizine-impacted soils, so, you know, soils impacted from salinity. So doing kind of a niche job, you know, as an environmental consultant. Um, I, you know, I joined NRCS and started out as a, you know, soil conservationist and ultimately became a district conservationist and then the state agronomist. And I was state agronomist for about 10 years in Louisiana before transitioning to this position here in Fort Worth at our uh, National Technical Support Center um, as the uh, National Erosion Specialist. 
So again, I've had kind of an interesting career, you know, you know, through through all of that. But um, you know, hopefully that that kind of gives you a little background of where I come from. You know, I'm I come from the land of of you know rice, sugarcane, and of course, you know, row crops. Um, you know, Louisiana's agriculture, I would say, is is unique and, and very different. But you know, I can tell you, you know, being in this position, you know, about three and a half years now. The United States has a very, very diverse uh, ag system, and again, just you know, even down to the county level within states, there are very interesting crop management systems that we've encountered, um, and that we've tried to support, you know, with with the tools we use, and and again, just our, our conservation planning outreach. So, anyway, hopefully that gives you a little bit about me. Again, there's a little more, but maybe that'll come out during the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and thank you. Yeah, that does give me a much better idea. Tell me, uh, what was your interest in in soil erosion? That that's that that's kind of got me curious. Oh, absolutely. Well, as an agronomist, you know, you know, my primary duty is providing support for again, really cropland, and again, all the uses of cropland, what we call working lands, and trying to again mitigate uh, all of the resource concerns that occur with trying to provide food and fiber for for all of us uh, you know some of these systems you know are are well established they've got in some cases you know more than a century under their belt from you know in the case of rice and sugarcane and you know trying to figure out ways to introduce conservation into these tried and true management systems has, has been a challenge and in doing that you know we're looking to protect, uh, you know, protect everything from just the the long-term fertility of the cropland to other things like, uh, you know, the water quality and, of course, maintaining the, the, you know, unique and critical habitat that can be found in Louisiana, especially along the coast. So, again, my passion is really what I call breaking into these management systems and finding ways, both working with the existing structure of the management systems, but also looking at how again some of those you know those hard dates you know planning harvest spraying activities tillage activities you know nutrient active you know nutrient application activities can be moved around without jeopardizing you know the yields and uh, again ultimately the survival of the farms so it's been a challenge but it's been exciting as well because again uh, you know Cover crops going mainstream has offered us a lot of, um, you know, interesting, you know, ways to introduce conservation into these systems. Um, also, you know, cover things like cover crops, reduced tillage, um, becoming mainstream has also helped us make inroads into landowners that may not participate in the farming operations themselves, but can again understand what producers are trying to do when they bring again these extra conservation measures to them maybe during their annual meetings trying to convince them that this is an important part of what they're doing it's important for long-term sustainability maybe you know they they won't see financial returns right away but long term it's the best thing for the operation so hopefully that gives you a little insight as to you know where i find my passion yeah well that's wonderful the first time I was introduced to your work was some of the modeling you did from the Haboob, the uh, the derecho we had in South Dakota, in yeah, I think it was mainly East River. And there were some really interesting statistics that came out of it because the Haboob itself, uh, that big old derecho, 
when those gusts really were quite spectacular, but you pointed out a whole lot of other things. And I was wondering if we could maybe dwell on some of the numbers that you had and maybe even kind of talk about maybe putting losses per acre in terms of what a producer might understand. And obviously, let's talk about wind erosion first. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah. So, Buzz, before we move on, can you yep. dig, dig in a little bit more and explain what happened in South Dakota? Um, yeah. You threw out a couple of words that that maybe uh, not everybody is aware of. So, can you just explain what happened and, and then how Chris came in? Absolutely. I, Chris, I wonder if you could explain that event for us. No, absolutely. Well, the, you know, on on May twelfth, uh, you know, of last year, twenty twenty two, there was a tremendous wind event that that occurred. Uh, you know, both in South Dakota and the, the surrounding states. I mean, just it you know it swept through and created something quite spectacular. Um, from my perspective, what happened was that you know you were right around planting season. There were a lot of things that kind of came together to make this a tremendous and unfortunate event. Um, you know, a lot of fields uh, had been prepped for planting. A lot of them have been planted, but you know, the the seedlings, you know, even if they had germinated, really weren't providing much protection um, from from wind erosion. So for those, you know, for those operations that practice, you know, spring tillage, you know, it's it it was a not a good time again to experience a tremendous wind event. Uh, so again, I was contacted again by uh, South Dakota um, NRCS to see if I could take a closer look and help quantify, you know, exactly what happened during that event. Because again, I received a lot of cell phone footage and a lot of people asking me, you know, what what do you think of this? How much erosion did we experience? You know, what what can we, you know, what can we do to prevent this from happening? So again, I was essentially tasked with taking a closer look as to exactly what happened that day. So in doing that. I used again a, a model we call sweep. It's 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 simply a single event wind erosion evaluation program. Again, it was developed by you know ARS scientists and engineers to you know take a, a closer look at again the events surrounding a day or maybe a couple of days. And what I found is that for that day, again, the the, the event really occurred during about a 10 to 15 minute period. Immediately following that tremendous, you know, wind event, which again, you know, you had sustained winds of maybe 60 miles per hour, gusts, you know, around 100 miles per hour. Right after that event, you know, you had rain. Rain occurred. You could clearly see that and again settled a lot of the dust and, you know, prevented you know uh, erosion from you know occurring at, at quite an intense level for the rest of the day. But for that event, again, again, the everything was preceded by high winds. So what I did is I, I used, again, my knowledge of, you know, what was probably happening on the most susceptible sites in South Dakota to, you know, model kind of a worst case scenario, um, a, ver a very susceptible soil. In this case, I chose the loamy fine sand. Generally, the, the most susceptible soils, you know, to wind erosion are those with higher sand percentages. So again, I picked a single soil. I picked, um, you know, bare soil conditions, assuming that, you know, there's, you know, I'm sure there are producers out there that, again, had everything prepped. Maybe they planted. Actually, that would be even worse. I mean, just dragging a, a drill, you know, or, or planter through the ground without anything having come up yet would actually be worse. 
and see what would happen. And what I found is that, you know, on those, again, on those most extreme sites, I mean, you were looking at maybe half to maybe even a, a dump truck worth of erosion that occurred during that single event, during that 15 minute period. And that's what obscured the skies. So, and so hopefully that gives you a little more information about, you know, that particular day. So, so that was a dump truck per acre in 15 minutes? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that dump truck, we're talking about three to five tons, right? Oh, actually, we're talking about 10 to 15 tons. Oh, my goodness. Okay. You you, you have much bigger dump trucks out there. Yes. This is the so, largest of the dump trucks. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of the, the classical sort of soil scientist, soil loss tolerance, was it three times more than what you annually should tolerate in soil loss per year? Is that is that yeah. more? Yeah. yeah, for that's right. The soil loss tolerance, you know, which is again, it's a it's a rough but established figure uh, for maintaining sustainability long term. Like, what can we lose but still maintain fertility of a site? And yeah. as you know, that can range from about you know as low as one ton per acre up to five tons per acre. Where yeah. five tons is probably the most common value you'll see. Yeah. And you know, for for that event, you know, for for that day, we're talking about double in a single event double the annual soil loss tolerance for maintaining fertility. So again, oh we're not God. counting any of the other events that may have occurred during the rest of the year. You know, just that single event um, puts you well beyond what, what would be tolerable. Wow. Wow. So that, in other words, also what was blown off the top then is possibly full of fertilizer that may have already been spread so that the producer actually loses that is would that be correct that would be absolutely correct that's right oh my goodness wow now chris did you do any other modeling uh where say a producer may have had a stand of cereal rye that either was terminated or that he was going to plant into something like that to provide a contrast for that haboob absolutely if if you had uh, you know, for example, an annual uh, oh. rye crop, that's right, yeah. an annual rye crop. And again, that the residue was left standing mm -hmm. um, in the field, you know, with that protection, I mean, you're looking at, you know, maybe just a ton, maybe a ton and a half of soil loss. So just a, a fraction of what you would have experienced, you know, without, you know, as opposed to with, you know, without the protection. So 10%, 10% or less loss of soil from that particular event. One last question, did you just model for straight up no-till where you still had uh, residue on the ground? Yeah, I said, I, I created again, one scenario where again, the soil was adequately protected withstanding yep. residue, which, yep. you know, for wind erosion offers much more protection than okay. um, than flat residue. Yep. But again, it was it was tremendous. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so wow, that's that's amazing, Joe. What do you think about that? How about fifteen tons, fifteen tons in in fifteen minutes? I, I just I, I think about first of all, maybe people don't really fully understand what that means. Um, if you look at the numbers, uh, you know it, it sounds like a lot, but what does it mean long term for these farms? Um, what does it mean to the neighbors? Um, what is what does it mean when you have uh, fertilizer and chemical inputs 
that are blowing away and ending up all over uh, in the cities, in the water. Um, it, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling when you think about what happened just in this one event. Um, and, you know, when I'm driving across South Dakota, we're seeing this, this blowing, um, you know, soil uh, almost every time I take a trip out. And there's certain areas when we're driving down 90 where you see it every single time. Um, so, I, and I don't know, I don't know why that is. I don't know if, if there's sections that are, um, you know, bigger farms that are, I, I don't know why, wh- whether, yeah, I don't know what the reason is, but um, it is pretty mind boggling. And uh, Chris, I, I, backing up to what you said about working with the landowners, um, I, I think that's an interesting topic. How do you, how do you help people understand the danger in, in what's happening here and, and help them understand they need to, to change up what they're doing so that we can keep these soils from eroding like they are or blowing away. Um, are the, are the landowners receptive and working with their tenants to make changes or, or is it the other way around? I'm going to approach that question from a, a couple of different ways. And, um, you know, there's there's no one one perfect answer to that. But the first thing I'd like to to point out, you know, as as part of you know me looking under the hood, you know, around this haboo, but also just the month of May, you know, around you know here in South Dakota, you know, I I was a little curious about the you know the erosion that may be taking place in in other days during the month of May, which is okay. a high which is a high wind energy month anyway. And I was just curious to see, you know, outside of this event on just maybe another day where, again, they were experiencing consistent high wind, what what would be happening? So, you know, just, just out of curiosity, I looked back uh, five days to the 7th of May. You know, and again, in, again, looking at all the climate data I downloaded from, you know, the, the regional airport, you know, for, for this, you know, for the month of May in 2022, I noticed that, you know, th- there was a sustained wind between 20 and actually a little over 30 miles per hour from about nine o'clock in the morning to about eight or nine o'clock at night. And I thought, hmm, let, let me let me model this as well to see what I might uncover. And what I found was shocking, you know, Buzz, what I found is that, you know, even though it wasn't as extreme an event, um, the erosion predicted from that day could actually possibly be twice, you know, for the day of the haboob. And what I'm talking about is instead of maybe, you know, almost a dump truck, we're talking about almost two dump trucks over the course of about 12 hours could have been lost if, you know, under those same conditions with a soil very susceptible to, you know, wind erosion and also just, you know, maybe a bare tilled soil. So, just just saying that is that that information, and of course, these tools that our, our planners use, I think, are one way we try and connect, you know, with with you know, landowners and producers, you know, in, in states that are susceptible to wind erosion. Is that we, we try and help them understand, you know, when those periods during their crop rotation are most susceptible. And again, we, that's where we, 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 you know, we move that discussion forward and we talk about what can then be done once We've got that hook. And you know, it's very similar to what, what you, you know, you've been doing and what Joe's been doing, talking about soil health. I mean, 
from my perspective, we're simply approaching the problem from just different perspectives, trying to find metrics to use to change hearts and minds, you know, Buzz. So, you know, in, you know, in doing that and in modeling these sites, you know, with, you know, our, our you know, wind and water models, we, we can show them what, what's happening and, for example, what risk they may be taking on by using cert, certain farming practices. Um, so that that's the first thing we do. But another thing that these tools allow us to do that, that's really interesting is to not necessarily look at um, the management system or the crop rotations average soil loss. Um, you know, for example, if it's a two, three or four year rotation to look at on average how much they're, soil they're losing and comparing that to the soil loss tolerance. But we can actually take a much closer look at any one part of that rotation to see if there's one crop they may be planting and one part of the management system that's very susceptible. And I think that's what's causing a lot of the issues, Joe, is that, you know, you've got, you know, many management systems that have high and low residue crops in rotation. And it's during maybe that low residue period when, you know, it's unprotected that, Again, the fields are blowing and, you know, we're losing, you know, soil, even though if we average out the erosion, you know, over the entire crop rotation, um, you know, you may see it, it, it's tolerable. But it's, again, that those winds coming off of the fields causing, you know, uh, the obscuring of highways um, and again, causing these te terrible accidents that I think is really what's getting people's attention. And trust me, I have no shortage of, of, of news, uh, you know, clips and videos all the way from, you know, uh, Montana, all the way down to Oklahoma of the terrible accidents that, that have been occurring. And, and again, the fatalities. So again, I, I think that, you know, the, the accidents are getting people's attention, but, you know, for for you know these you know the, this new generation of more astute producers we're working with, they they want to know a little bit more. And you know the the tools of, for assessing soil health that's one thing that we use to help teach them about you know what they're currently doing and and you know the the impacts of what they may change. But you know it's kind of the same thing with the tools. That's that's what we're using. And and the same thing goes for the landowners. You know if 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 it's not their land is that they're becoming more educated and they're more receptive to to suggestions for, for changing the management systems. Let me just clarify something. Uh, suppose we just have a straight up corn soy rotation. What I'm hearing you say is that if you have one of these days with not the spectacular high winds that you saw during the derecho or haboob, but on a day where you might have 20, 20 knot gusts, um, what you're saying is that a, a field that might be either conventional tilled or just kind of left fallow uh, behind soybeans, you're going to see a lot more blowing. Is that correct? That's right. You know, the, the again, the haboob was quite a visual and spectacular yeah. event. But, you know, again, after that, winds did die down. But remember, the event was also followed by some rainfall that helped, again, settle the dust and, again, minimize the, you know, the post-Haboob right. erosion. Yeah. But, again, when you have, you know, fields that are unprotected, that have been disturbed, maybe cover is minimal, and you have sustained winds that are above 20 or even above 30, in the case, miles per hour, erosion can be, you know, catastrophic whenever you add up the total for the entire day. And those are the days where, again, visibility is, again, hazy, and it's hazy all day long. 
again, that, that's what's happening. Yep. So it's, a, it's kind of a slow bleed. I guess the other question sort of going back, because you talk about models and a lot of technical stuff, and maybe I'm trying to channel producers as, don't tell me about that technical science stuff, you know, I'm, I'm, tell me what to do. And I guess one of the next thing, you know, I, I, I like the term, what's the next good thing to do is, you know, if we're having corn soybean rotations, what about having, if you're not even planting cover crops, what about having wheat in the, the rotation? So you're reducing that by a little bit. Would that be a step or a good thing to do if you're trying to manage this and you're not ready to say step in cover crops? You know, absolutely. Um, the, you know, at the foundation, at its foundation, the things we recommend to help okay. minimize wind erosion actually track right along with, you know, which you, you've been promoting so actively for soil health. The four principles of soil health apply right here. Again, the, the field level management changes are, again, the foundation of what we recommend. Uh, Again, so let's talk about, you know, minimizing disturbance. You know, we absolutely want to keep the soil structure that we have, not disturb it and not make that soil more susceptible to wind erosion. So, again, disturbance of, again, those biological glues that hold soil particles together is a no-no. So, you know, that's, that's step one. Uh, we want to maximize the living roots throughout the year, a living plant is going to always provide your most protection in a field. So we've got, again, not just from its stature, but again, it's going to provide the most coverage in the field and help dissipate that wind energy that's moving across the field. So if, as long as you can keep something living in your field, that's, that is fantastic. We also want to, you know, maximize soil cover and, you know, very simply put, you know, standing residue is better than flat residue and living living plants are absolutely the best. So, but any cover that you can provide in fields, again, it's going to help dissipate wind energy and stop what we call the avalanche of the soil erosion occurring in the field. You know, it'll, it'll keep that soil Soil particles from first sliding and rolling across the field, then eventually hopping and smashing against other particles, and then eventually getting blown into the atmosphere and um, you know being lost completely from the field. So, standing residue, you know, again, are again plants offer two ways of protection. You know, the first is again simply dissipating wind energy and preventing it from reaching the soil surface. Right. But the second is, you know, even if it's in strips across the field, and again, hopefully perpendicular to the prevailing winds, but again, even if it's in strips of say bare soil and again standing residue, what it does is it actually stops again that cascade effect across the field. And again, soil particles, you know, begin moving and again bumping into one another. If you can stop that from happening, you can, you know, eventually stop, you know, the soil from becoming suspended and completely leaving the field. So it's, you know, it, it's it, it can provide protection in two different ways depending on how it's used. And and beyond uh, up here where we get a lot of snow, beyond just protecting the soil, uh, it can also hold the snow, keep it from blowing away, and keep maintain moisture, right, and create Absolutely. pockets where the soil stays a little warmer underneath and potentially the water will be able to infiltrate. Um, we're going out to South Dakota next week around Chamberlain and we're gonna do some um, 
some soil infiltration tests in this heavy, heavy snow. Um, we'll dig underneath and we'll look at spots where the grasslands are actually holding the snow. And apparently underneath, um, it's not frozen solid like it would be if it was just allowed to blow. So once the stuff, the snow starts to melt, it will actually be held in place instead of running off. So I suppose that's another uh, big benefit of leaving, uh, leaving residue, right? Absolutely. Everything you said is spot on, Joe. Yeah. Joe, we need to give you an honorary degree in agronomy and soil science. All right, man. Do I get a, a new hat or shirt or something? Yeah, we're going to get you a track ahead. All right. I like it. <laughs> Chris, I interrupted you uh, at uh, keeping keeping the soil covered. I think you were going to pop into diversity then. I, I absolutely was. And from the perspective of you know wind erosion, uh, the, the diversity piece can really be addressed by making sure that if you have low residue crops in your rotation, that you also include high residue crops. Um, again, to make sure that again, you've, you've got something that is gonna produce biomass that won't degrade quickly, that can be left and again, offer protection as you move into your low residue crop. So again, it, it, it's amazing the carryover effect, you know, not just while you know it's growing, but you know the subsequent residue, you know, into the next crop that high residue crops can bring uh, to the field and soil protection, and of course, just you know, from a soil health point of view, just simply bring you know you know, you know biodiversity to to help control all the other issues. For example, you know, just uh, keeping checks on 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 pests and diseases in the field. So, okay. yep. Well, I'm going to play a little bit of dev devil's advocate over here and say, um, well, you know, I've invested a lot of in a, a time and also a, a lot of money in this big equipment that I have. And I just want to have, you know, long runs and I want to make really, really big fields because that's how I'm going to be more efficient and being more efficient will keep me in business. Uh, so a lot of the things you're telling me, I'm not going to be able to do. Help me understand how I can do that, the, given the current constraints I have. Again, we, you know, conservation planners uh, across the country have this very conversation all the time. And I think that the best way to approach talking to you, the producer, you know, in, in trying to make these decisions is one, educate yourself as to what exactly is going on with the you know, the erosion based on the management that you are implementing you know also looking at again the the soil health impacts that you're having with your current management and really learn about again the print the underlying principles so that as jerry mcguire said you can help us better help you because you know when, as i mentioned earlier in the podcast we you know we run up against some of the most complex and and niche management systems in the country and we don't have an answer for how to address wind erosion soil health other resource concerns and all of these management systems perfectly in fact we're on that journey with you know uh, our partners at land-grant universities um, other agencies trying to figure out you know how best to form to maximize you know the protection of our natural resources while maintaining again you know your your form and keeping you profitable. So what I would tell you is this is learn about what needs to be done 
and first think about those changes that you can make to your management system that will impact or significantly disturb the key dates in your crop rotation, things like your planting dates and your harvest dates. You know, knowing about the you know the principles of soil health, knowing about those things that you know that that cause so, uh, you know wind erosion and water erosion. Think about what you can introduce into that management system first that will minimize the disturbance of your your crop rotation. Implement them on limited acres and learn from them. Afterwards, you know, and again, once you, you know, once you see, you know, and start to learn how to manage, you know, this 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 new dynamic in your management system, then you can begin looking at significant manipulations to your crop rotation, and start to think about investments in, in other equipment. So again, it's it's a stepwise fashion. Um, you know, taking this journey, I, I would always recommend limit the acres that you, again, you know, that you change your management on so that you can learn about all of the, the new things that are, that are going to come with, for example, planting a cover crop, maybe not, or, or just simply not tilling as much or at all, maybe post-harvest. Again, just those little changes may introduce new diseases, new pests, some may go away, some some may pop in, maybe just for the short term, maybe for the long term. But once you learn how to manage that new system, again, that'll give you the confidence and, uh, you know, the encouragement to try new things. So that that's that's kind of the the advice, I think, that we're we're going with, uh, you know, across the country. That's that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, for us, you know, I, in in my own personal situation, I don't farm, but I know when I have to change things as as silly as, you know, I had two computers in my office for three years, and really the only thing that prevented me from dumping my old computer was I had all sorts of websites saved and passwords, and it I didn't want to take the one hour to two hours of figuring out how I was going to do that. And I eventually did it, and I cannot believe how much time I saved. And so that's just me, you know, with a one or two hour investment. So I would imagine that a lot of this is an investment in time and research. And from what I know, producers, they're always listening to podcasts and looking at videos and stuff like that. And investing in soil health may be you know, probably, in my opinion, is probably the biggest thing that they can do. I, I'm going to plug something over here, and Joe, you can you can jump in. I think you know what we're seeing this year is the a push for climate smart uh, agriculture, and I know sometimes that's a trigger for some of our producers because it's like, you know, you're telling me how to be sustainable, and the land's been in my farm, you know, family for 140 years. Are you kidding me? But it looks like an, an enormous amount of money is being set aside um, in, in the USDA. And I think of no other place than better than South Dakota to be able to get that money in the right place, you know, for climate smart agriculture. And I think some of these things would be a, a crop rotation. I don't know if that's still in that program, but, you know, putting a small grain into that rotation and then, you know, going to go you know going no-till and then starting to invest in cover crops you know those are the three 
practices, I'm sure there are so many more. If you're looking at livestock, you know, you're looking at rotational grazing, adaptive, well, adaptive grazing management isn't a, a practice per se, but, you know, going down those roads. So I think um, there seems to be a lot of funding for people to fundamentally change their business model. And again, I think South Dakota is the place that can lead the way in moving forward, despite the name of uh, climate smart agriculture. I think producers are smart enough to set aside, okay, that's a bit of a trigger, but that money is about as green as any other any other money. So I don't know if you, uh, Joe, do you have any comments before we let Chris have at it? I, I was just thinking I'm working on a project right now, and I, I uh, interviewed uh, a guy, Stan Temple, who works for the University of Wisconsin, and he, he's hold, he holds the position that Aldo Leopold held when he was there. So we're doing a story at the shack wow. on Aldo Leopold, um, and, and you know, way back in the, I don't know, I think it was the 20s, Aldo was working for the Forest Service in the Southwest. He went up to Wisconsin. And what he discovered when he started working with farmers was um, it wasn't enough to um, have regulations like the Forest Service had or financial incentives um, to make changes, especially on these family farms. It really came down to ethics. And so when we're talking about these topics right here, um, you were just talking about the, the funds that are available to help these farmers make changes. Um, I, I, I wonder... Um, long term, if that's if that's a viable solution, or if if it needs to be a you know maybe that will help change the mindset, um, and and it will become more of an ethical decision on what they're doing on their farms. Um, and again, I think there's always the danger. Um, I think about this all the time when I I'm interviewing. It's really easy for me to say we really need to be concerned about the planet. Um, I'm not the one that's trying to support my family and the next generation on these farms. So the decisions are a lot more complex when it, when they have to make those decisions. So, um, you know, uh, Chris, how much of what you do, what you're teaching when you go out and work with, with farmers um, is based on um, the ethics, the long-term impact on the environment and how much of it is based on financial decisions? It's it's primarily the ethics. I mean, you you hit it, Joe. Um, you know, the financial incentives to to implement a lot of these management, you know, uh, conservation practices and engineered conservation practices are great. Um, you know, oftentimes they make the difference, but the real changes are made whenever producers really understand the impacts of what they're doing on their operations. And how they can how they can affect, you know, just the long term sustainability of that operation and their contribution to things in the world. So, you know, one thing that again I, I don't speak very often about, you know, are the impacts of all the conservation practices we, you know, we we recommend for wind erosion or for soil health, for you know, for climate mitigation. That's really not something that comes up in a typical conversation with producers. But what often comes up or discussions about resiliency of their operations and the ability to withstand catastrophic events. And they see that, trust me, they, and that's a conversation we're having often now, more than ever, be it, you know, catastrophic rain events or catastrophic wind events. You know, as I mentioned to you earlier, Buzz, you know, 
if if your soil is well, well protected by again this like a, a annual grain residue, um, and you're planting right into that, you know the predicted erosion will be a tenth of of what it otherwise normally would have been, and that's resiliency right there. And we've got producers coming to us saying, "Not again! This is not going to happen again on my operation if I can prevent it." Interesting. And, Interesting. Yeah and, yeah. and again, and and they're like they're coming to us. They're they're stubborn. And they want, and and they're saying this is not going to happen again. Teach me how to prevent this from happening again. And awesome. that's probably the most exciting wow. situation we can again approach as a conservation planner is just to see that they've got the fire in their hearts and they really want to make change and and learn about you know how they can do that. Before we hop back into this episode, we wanted to take a moment to remind our listeners that the USDA will be expanding conservation program opportunities through EQIP and CSP for climate smart practices. These practices include a lot. I'll go ahead and take a deep breath before I roll them out. They are conservation crop rotation, residue and tillage management, reducing tillage or using no-till, cover crops, nutrient management, grass seeding practices like field borders, filter strips, grassed waterways, pasture and range improvements, land plantings, and range seedings, as I'm sure there will be a few other practices that will fall under this category as well. So none of these are new and all of them have a proven track record in South Dakota. Get in touch with your local NRCS to see how using these climate smart practices could benefit your operation in 2023 and beyond. And now, back to the episode. I have one more question that I want to ask then. I'd like Joe to have a question that, Joe, if you can think of a question that would end us up on a high note. And then, Chris, I'm going to ask you to to plug uh, your center, plug yourself so that we can put that in the show notes. So, Chris, uh, I think this may sort of lead into a high note is... I've been in this game. I met Ray Archuleta in 2010. And the the few of us that were in it uh, in this part of the world were really kind of the laughing stock. You know, we didn't have any data. We just had, you know, a, a fire in our bellies and a light in our eyes, but we were we were delusional. I was wondering, and I've noticed a lot of changes since then, but I was wondering if you could care to comment on the change in ethics, in attitudes, awareness of soils and soil health in the last 10 to 15 years of your career. I would love to answer that question. And I've got, and boy, have I got an answer and a story for you regarding that <laughs> que- regarding that question. Um, you know, as you know, I've mentioned earlier, I followed you, I followed Ray Archuleta, and I appreciate what you've done actually over the last decade plus regarding soil health. Um, it's helped to, again, it's helped us to have the technical conversations around what is soil health, what needs to be done. It's not taboo anymore to talk about soil health because of efforts of people like you and Ray. But I just want to just talk to you a little bit about, you know, just the challenges to, again, these conservation measures that we're trying to sell. So, I mean, so often, um, you know, the economics is brought up as being the number one 
you know, hurdle, you know, you know, what, what's the impact of the conservation practices to, you know, the, the, the producer's bottom line? What are the costs of maybe engineered structures or things like, wind, you know, maybe windbreaks? How long will it take for me to pay this down, um, you know, and, and pay for these investments, uh, you know, as opposed to, again, maybe the, the slim margins that I'm working with? Um, that's really not the driver of, of, of change. Um, you know, as you know, one of the major drivers, you know, has to do with, again, producers learning about their, their impact, uh, impacts on, uh, their, you know, not just their crop rotation, but ultimately, uh, their, their, their farm's resiliency. But one thing that often goes unmentioned, not mentioned or unmentioned, um, is the, the social pressures that are placed on farmers um, in adopting new conservation practices. And I ran into some of these challenges. Actually, it's been about seven or eight years now before, again, things had really caught on and cover crops and soil health had been become more mainstream. You know, I, I went out and I spoke with four or maybe five, but at least four producers about setting up demonstration and research sites for cover crops. Um, you know, went out you know, to the landscape in Louisiana, uh, simply talking to them about the benefits of what they're doing, you know, talking to them about what would be studied, um, you know, talking to them about their, their knowledge about soil health and the, and the use of cover crops. All of them were very excited um, to have the conversations with us um, with with our partners that were, were with us uh, on on this uh, roadshow, but one thing that kept coming up, and this was brought up by four producers, is that they made a specific rec uh, specific request that the demonstration fields not be located next to major highways, so that people would see what they're doing, and that just speaks to again where we were then, and of course where we are now, where. Cover crops are front and center. They're mainstream. Producers can talk about, again, their inclusion into their management systems and the benefits that they bring without having to worry about what their neighbors will think or even say about them. So, again, that that integrity, um, you know, has always been a challenge, but it's not as much of a challenge anymore. You know, now that, again, some of the hard conversations have been had and we see that, again, you know, cover crops and you know, again, a focus on soil health can offer so many benefits to these operations. Well, that's a that's a great story. I don't know if we can top that one. Man. Joe, Joe, go ahead. <laughs> well, Chris, I, first of all, I just I want to thank you for the work that you do. Um, it, it really is going to take an army of people like yourself to to get the word out there and help the producers understand um, what they can do to, you know, to help their their own farms and and ultimately help the planet. But I think about whenever I think about soil health, degraded soil, I think about degraded human health. And I, I think about the impact, the, the human impact that the work you're doing has. And I'm sure that's something that you're well aware of. If if we are, um, we are working on building healthier soils, uh, there's probably a lot less inputs involved and ultimately it's going to mean healthier food for the consumer. And this is sort of how I wrap this up all the time. I think ultimately it's going to take um, not just the work of the producers and the landowners, but the work of the consumers to make changes globally, right? Um, and and uh, again, just back to you on that, but um, 
human health has to be something that that drives you to do what you do. You seem really excited about what you do and passionate about it. So, um, what are your what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I appreciate the words of encouragement, and and again, the the praise maybe not all deserved, but I can tell you that you know this this mission is is going to be never ending. Um, we've got evidence of that of just some you know uh, some of the the field changes that are going on you know in North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, seeing that some of the protections that were in place in old aerial photography are now gone. Think you know maybe during periods of mild weather, thinking that maybe those protections aren't necessary anymore. And, and of course, you can get away with that for a few years. But the the education burden to re-remind people of what people generations before us learned the hard way is is never ending. And um, you know that's that's you know that's what I'm doing, to, playing a small part of. And again, you know, trying to teach partners and teach you know uh, agronomists, conservation planners. Uh, you know, around the country. So again, that's, again, it, it, it's never ending. That's, that's what I'll leave you with, Joe. Yeah, awesome. Well, isn't it wonderful that it's never ending? Otherwise, we'd be out of jobs. You know, every, everybody <laughs> would true. be serving, serving coffee behind our favorite coffee bar, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> so yeah, well, hey, Chris, we're, it's about time to wrap up. But I was wondering if you could talk to us about if I'm a producer in South Dakota or anywhere, in fact, how do I find more about out about your work and maybe are there interesting reads that you would point us to on the internet and we'll try and put those in the show notes? Absolutely. There's, there's, there are more resources available now than ever. Um, there's so many places I could point you to, but the first place I would, I would point you to in taking on your journey is your local land grant university. In case, in your case, maybe it's you know South Dakota, maybe Minnesota, maybe North Dakota, but look look to the, your land grant university for again this this new generation of updated guidance on soil health, cover crops, and again how they work with again the management systems for your state. Gotcha. I would also part you you know point you to you know resources uh, that are provided by organizations like the Soil Health Institute, uh, those by USDA, farmers.gov. Um, they're all good springboards for finding, you know, so, so many resources out there. But, you know, other resources to point to, for example, maybe, you know, your neighbor. Um, I know for a fact that soil health you know, wind erosion prevention, just conservation in general, it's now becoming a focal point of producer meetings everywhere. I mean, just what were formerly just production oriented meetings now have, um, you know, a conservation uh, element that's more and more significant. So again, just local meetings, make contacts with those producers that are leaders and that have tried, again, some of these systems, you know, have similar soils, maybe are farming in the similar region as you, and learn from them. It it may save you a year, two, maybe five of, of some of the mistakes that they've made and learn from them. Um, again, learn from your peers. So, you know, that's that's really that's where I would point people first and foremost. And of course, NRCS conservationists are there. We're in our field offices. Uh, soil and water conservation districts are there to help you. And again, through an iterative dialogue, we can we can sure help you find what you need for your farm. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And one of the things we're really fortunate with in South Dakota, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are really strong mentor networks, both in the grassland and then and then the row crop communities. So there are guys out there. It's amazing. I mean, these guys are guys and women are willing to share their knowledge for free. And and you know, that's passion. And it just I tell you what, I'm so thrilled to have witnessed this period in my life. And you know, you said you uh, you didn't think you could match my enthusiasm, but I'm kind of fired up uh, after talking to you. I don't know about you, Joe. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> so, um, but Chris, it's been really wonderful to talk to you. Um, we're gonna we're gonna close it down, but I, I really appreciate chatting with you and. Um, I, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Joe, any parting words? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Buzz and Joe, it, it was a pleasure meeting both you, and, and thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. All right, gentlemen, I know you guys have busy days, so we'll sign off. Uh, um, enjoy your day. Well, Buzz, some pretty eye-popping numbers. Obviously, the uh, loss in soil was pretty devastating, but also equally insightful numbers when we talk about that when we do actually have the soil covered, that there's only one-tenth of that loss. Well, it, it was, in fact, if you, if you listened to that, uh, you'll find that it was less than one-tenth. And I called Chris up, uh, and he and I had a little conversation about this, and he talked about that, you know, when you've got a lot of cover, it's almost difficult to model because basically with the cover, especially if you've got something like cereal rye up there or standing cover that really reduces the wind velocity on the field, he talks about an avalanche effect. So you, uh, essentially what this means is it, it's a tipping point. So once you start mobilizing one grain of sand or one grain of silt, and that starts bouncing. As it hits the ground, it hits another grain. And, and then those grains, especially now if you've got uncovered soil, then they start hitting one another and passing their energy on. And that energy builds up. And that is exactly uh, how an avalanche gets to form, mm. is you have this avalanche of, of, um, of mater material coming off the ground. And so, um, the the cover especially standing cover disrupts that and you know when i went back to him he said well that less than a tenth is is an estimate but essentially if you've got a cereal rye cover crop there you know the 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 wind erosion is essentially zero so that's that's something to think about the, the taller your your cover you know if you've got corn stalks instead of chopping them you know leaving them standing uh, of course that helps and as, as joe talked about that also helps uh, you know collect snow and allows water to go back into the ground yeah well this is definitely the biggest education that i've had on soil erosion something we've talked about and put videos out before but really that correlation between keeping the soil covered and the lack of erosion that happens this is the most powerful analogy that i've seen for that yeah, and we have pretty reliable numbers for that, so that's that's good. And we'll have uh, a little bit of, um, we'll probably, today, if you look at our social media 
growing resilience, uh, you'll you'll start looking at some of the the graphics we put out there as well. Yes, you will. Well, our next our next uh, few episodes, I think the next three episodes are with our friends Barry and Eli Little. Uh, I think we've only visited with them once, but I feel like Joe Joe Dickey gives us footage of the Littles, what well, feels like once a year. Well, you'll you'll see how Joe loves to visit with them. Yes, um, yeah, we visited Barry and e- they're in Castlewood, South Dakota. So now we're kind of jumping to a little bit of row cropping land as well. Um, you know, they they uh, have a fair amount of row crop land, but 800 acres of pasture. And they integrate livestock with their uh, with their crop, row cropping system, and because they're doing that, um, you know they're utilizing those cover crops, but um, they're they're also making a lot more money. And you, uh, they talk about how soil health has improved their ability to reduce inputs, while they're maintaining yields, um, which is absolutely fantastic you know it's a lot of people might be incredulous but you know barry talks about it quite a bit yeah well and i just put together i think three or four videos featuring barry and eli little to go with our extending the grazing season feature video which i don't know if it'll be out by the time we release this episode but it will be coming out in the next couple months yeah this is all to do with livestock integration and in fact, the fifth principle of soil health, minimum disturbance, keep the soil covered, keep a live root in the soil year round, diversity, 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 and then integrate livestock with back into the land. There we go. And, and these guys are really good at what they do. Yeah, so we'll have them coming up next. Obviously, check out the show notes for free resources. And don't forget to remember the R's. Rotate, rest, recover. And remember the five principles of soil health. Can you remember them? Keep the soil covered. Minimal disturbance. Diversity. Livestock integration. And a live root in the soil. Live root in the soil. Yep, yep, that's it. Good job. Barrett, for a non-farmer, you're pretty good. Two city slickers from Columbia, South Carolina. Two city slickers. Yeah, from Columbia, South Carolina. The other thing is next podcast, we're going to have a little special. We normally ask our farmers and ranchers 10, question, 10 questions, and uh, these give us insights into, uh, into what they're doing. We're producing a book, and uh, Barry and Eli are row croppers that we ask these questions of. And so it's about a 15-minute uh, chat, but I, I, we were going to do it mainly for the printed word, but... I was so impressed with their responses that I thought we should make a separate little podcast about it. So it's about 15 minutes. Yeah, we look forward to bringing that to you. That's one of my favorite portions of the interviews that we do when we sit down at the end and ask them uh, these 10 questions, which are pretty powerful. Okay, well, we'll get out of the way. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And keep it resilient.